Today, Stacy and I begin a four-week sermon series around the word together, growing together, life together, worship together, today, church together. If we're going to talk about church, we need to go to the book of Acts. It is the story of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ after Easter and with the power of Pentecost. I grew up in a really good church in central Illinois. I went to Sunday school all the way through, church choir all the way through, church camp, you name it, I did it. I learned, though, as I got older that as good as those folks were, they left out parts of the Bible when they were teaching it to me. Uh, And I don't know about you, but you may find that particularly the second half of this, when we get to chapter 5 in Acts, they may have left that out for you too. Listen for God's Word. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard these things. The word of the Lord. You don't sound so certain about that. Let, <laughs> let, let's see what we can do about that this morning. I was pastor in downtown Denver for several years, and about 20 years ago, uh, a citizens' referendum was put before the citizens of Colorado, which if passed would have revoked the tax-exempt status of all churches and other nonprofit organizations. The measure was voted down by a wide margin, but it 
generated, as you might imagine, a great amount of debate. In advertisements against the amendment, there were always this long list of groups that would be impacted, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, YMCA, YWCA, Kiwanis, Rotary Clubs, hospitals, schools, and churches. In a list with nonprofit groups and public service organizations, there listed was the Church of Jesus Christ. If we didn't know better, we would conclude that this is what the church is, one of a series of good organizations that are more or less the same. Who are we as the church? Are we a club, just one in a long list of terrific organizations dedicated to civic advancement? What sets us apart? They pay dues. We kind of have dues. Uh, they serve the community. We serve the community. A lot of these clubs have long, boring committee meetings, and we get to do that too. <laughs> Church, of course, is more than that. Clubs do not marry people or bury people. They do not baptize. They don't gather around the Lord's table. But there's another entity kind of halfway that sort of does. Chapels do, either real or metaphorical chapels. If you are in an airport concourse or in a hospital, you may pass a room that has a door that's labeled chapel. These are places where individual spiritual needs get met in the moment. And this can be important work. Chapels also fit consumer culture with an invitation to choose the spiritual commodities that best meet your tailored circumstance. In a chapel, if you don't agree or aren't getting what you need, you just move on a couple doors to the next opportunity. Now, I know many churches, unfortunately, that are no more than clubs. You couldn't tell the difference between them and a PTA meeting if you tried. I still know more congregations that are marvelous chapels, doing good and tending to individual members in important ways. But a church is not a club and it's not a chapel. Being church is hard, disciplined work. Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer was once asked what he thought was the most radical claim the Christian faith makes. He thought for a long while, and then he responded, the most radical claim of the Christian faith is together we are the body of Christ. There is a word <clears throat> that sets churches apart from clubs or chapels. It's nearly a taboo word in our culture. It's a helpful word. It's an empowering word. It can be a freeing word, but the world knows it not. The word is sacrifice. Sacrifice has negative connotations in our consumer culture. Why did Bonhoeffer say that together we are the body of Christ is the most radical of all Christian proclamations? Because being the body of Christ means putting aside private agendas. It means we sacrifice individual wants for the sake of being part of something formed by God, for the sake of being church together, which the Bible never claims will be easy. A club, even a chapel, may never find so, something so compelling 
that the word sacrifice needs to be used. But with the church, beginning with the one in whose name we gather, we can't avoid it. Sacrifice takes many forms, but sacrifice I don't think is a word that any of us or certainly our culture well understands. I remember hearing once of a congregation in a suburban area that had an idea of opening a daycare center. The Christian Education Committee met to discuss the proposal, but an elder named Helen raised her voice. Why is the church in the daycare business? How is this part of our church's core ministry? Proponents of the idea had thought this through and had their reasons. It was a good use of the building. Uh, It would attract young families. It would be another source of income. The Episcopalians down the street already had one and they wanted to compete. And besides, Helen, one of the committee members said, you know that it's getting harder every day for folks around here to put food on the table. Both people and a couple have to work and they need daycare. That's not true, said Helen. You know it's not true. It is not hard for most people in our church to put food on the table. There are people in our community for whom putting food on the table is hard, and if this proposal is for them, I'm all for it. But if we seem to be talking about is a ministry to those for whom it's harder every day to have it all, three cars, a 60-inch TV, a place at the lake, I just hate having the church tell young families that somehow their life will be better if they can only get some more stuff. The church ought to be courageous enough to say that's a lie. Things don't make life. What Helen was pressing on is the basic question of the church. How do we live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? One answer to that lies in this first real crisis to hit the young Jerusalem church at one of its meetings that is told to us by Acts chapter four and five. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, but they held back some of the proceeds and brought only part of it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds? You haven't lied to us, you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. Hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, did you sell it for this price? Yes, I sold it for this price. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to tempt the Spirit of God? Hark, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down and died. Can you believe we didn't save this text for stewardship season? I mean, (laughs) the passage concludes a great fear came upon the whole church. And when they say great fear came upon the whole church, that's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. Here, in the most painful of ways, the church experienced itself as a disciplined community of truthfulness. Note that Peter accuses Ananias and Sapphira not of greed, this isn't about their possessions, but of lying. And not just lying to the apostles, 
lying to God. The image in Acts 5 clashes, of course, with our view of a warm, caring church. Uh, the, the story goes that Peter should have dealt more gently with these two. Maybe if he'd been to seminary and had a pastoral counseling class, he would have known how to do this, help them see that while they had resources, they still had problems. Why didn't Peter enable them to find more meaningful lives rather than to confront them in a way that shocked them to death? Does following Jesus call us out of ourselves for the sake of others or not? That was the question about the church in Acts, and it's been the question for the church ever since. Forsaking the socially acceptable vocation of helping people live just a little less miserably Peter confronted the new followers of Jesus with this radical vision of the sort of church of which God has called them to be a part. The question in response to this story is not, how can this happen? The question to ask is, what sort of community do we need to be to enable us to be this sort of church, a church of truthful community? It's a church where sacrifice is not a forbidden word. When we are being faithful to our calling, the church should help all people connect with God. And that's so risky, and it's hard, and so many times it's painful. The congregation oriented toward God may burst forth in any moment in exuberant spirit, or may be seized with fear. Either way, momentous things are at stake with God's church. Yet, at the same time, the church first experienced itself as church, first used the word ecclesia to describe what it was in this moment. It's a fearful thing, I think, to, to realize how marginal our definitions of church really are when we place them next to Acts chapter 5. Have you noticed that we never talk about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in church? Maybe that's why people find the church so irrelevant. What if every single church activity was evaluated by the essential criteria, how well does this enable people, body and soul, to be together and to connect with God? How well does this enable people together to be with God? Do you see how this requires a great amount of sacrifice it, by enabling people, diverse people, to be with God together? This is risky, holy business. A young man in his 20s named Jonathan Iger has a blog, he's had it for a couple years, called Ponder Anew. A few months ago, uh, he wrote an open letter to the church, just all churches, offering what uh, people ought to do in church to attract those who are in their 20s, the millennials, to come to church. In part, this is what his open letter said, Dear church, don't target us. In doing so, you've marketed and advertised yourself into oblivion. We're left with homogeneous congregations of approximately the same ages and background 
who are just there for what they can get out of church. No wonder we've left. Just be the church. Be yourself. Use your regular old liturgy. Offer your regular old sacraments. Tear down silos. Save us from ourselves. Cast a net wide. Let everyone come. Trust me, we're more likely to show up when we don't feel like fish snapping up the bait. We don't need more youth group lock-ins, more Sunday school options tailored for every single age group, more senior adult offerings on beekeeping or genealogy. I don't think we have those here, so we're good. We need to look into faces of old and young, rich and poor, of different colors, races, and ethnic backgrounds so we can learn to see Jesus in faces that don't look like mine, so we can remember that God's kingdom is bigger than our safe suburban bubble. We need community not bound together by age or economic status or skin color or likes or dislikes, but wrought with the hammering of nails on a wooden cross. Week after week, season after season, year after year, let us participate in the drama of the gospel. It's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to produce intense emotional response. It is a disciplined, anticipatory remembrance of who we were, who we are, and who we shall be. We need this. We need these heartfelt rituals in our lives to keep us returning to the fount of grace to mark our way back home. What am I willing to sacrifice for the church like that? What will we yield for the sake of the vision of what God wants to do in our midst? Sacrifice can take us in so many surprising ways in God's grace, turning us in directions that we would never go on our own. But led by the Holy Spirit, we go for God's sake. Church is not a religious supermarket with individual commodities available in our choice of aisles. We are drawn to be church together by the display of God's love in Jesus Christ. That is why and how we lay down our wants, our needs, our preferences, and prepare to sacrifice to be the church together for Jesus' sake. We trust that if we empty ourselves before God together, God will fill us up. My friend Rebecca remembered recently. When I was in college, I frequently walked past uh, an old church on the edge of campus. Uh, one of the paths leading from the university to the main street along the campus, the street had everything from the $5 burrito place to the frat houses to a movie theater to all sorts of watering holes, and this path went right by this church. As you can imagine, it was a road well-traveled, in the middle of the path, the church had placed a sign, which was mostly an invitation to come inside, but it ended this way. Know that God still cares for this broken world and for all its creatures, and that the cross, even when all else fails, yet makes its appeal. Rebecca says, I re read that sign a lot during my four years, after September 11th, as we prepared to go to war with Iraq on the day my friend's father died suddenly. 
The recent tragedies of Orlando and Baton Rouge and Minnesota and Dallas brought it to mind. So I emailed the church office to ask if they could tell me exactly what was written on that sign. It turns out that the church removed it a while back during construction, and when the work was finished, they didn't put it back up. In the words of the church administrator, some people felt it was awfully gloomy to attract students to come in. Know that God still cares for this broken world and for all its creatures. And that the cross, even when all else fails, yet makes its appeal. If we remove sacrifice from the essence of church together, we are not a church. I believe with all my heart that what makes a church be a church is living into the truth that in God's world there are some things worth sacrifice in following Jesus Christ. God has the power to touch every part of our lives, individually and together. Our passions, our money, our agendas, our calendars, our attitudes, our need to control our lives and make them by God's grace holy things. We are called to share and grow and risk and venture out into the unknown. And as we do that together, we remember that in one of the most shocking, disturbing, fearful moments in the lives of the first Christians, they were first called church. The stakes are that high. The calling is that strong. The sacrifice isn't just what we do, it's who we are together. What the Bible knows in nearly every page is that sacrifice is the door to faith. Sacrifice is the path to joy because sacrifice has the name and has the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.